For the last couple weeks, we have heard stories from the book of Acts. As Alec mentioned last week, the longer name for the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. The writer of the book of Acts is often also thought to be the writer of Luke. The stories are both written in similar styles. The New Testament scripture today is the opening story from Acts. It tells the same story that appears at the end of the Gospel of Luke, how Jesus gathers with his disciples, he prays with them, and then he's taken up into the heavens. It might seem like Luke is repeating himself if he puts it at the end of the Gospel and then the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, but as one scholar notes, we can instead see these overlapping stories as a way of showing that the spotlight is swinging from focusing on Jesus to focusing on the apostles, the disciples. The Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus praying with his disciples and then leaving, and the Acts of the Apostles begins with Jesus praying with his disciples, leaving, and then the disciples trying to figure out what to do next. The apostles are taking center stage. It is their, their turn to step into the spotlight. Let us take our seats and watch. Let us listen to the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, Suddenly, two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder what this story makes you think about. What other Bible stories does this passage bring to your mind? I thought about making you all answer this question by actually turning and talking to each other, but I didn't want to see your terrified faces looking at me like deer in headlights. So we'll keep the question rhetorical for now. I wonder what other Bible stories this passage brings to your mind. Perhaps the first connection you might have made is the obvious one, connection with the scripture we heard from 2 Kings. Jesus is taken up into heaven in similar ways to Elijah being swept away by a chariot. The disciples stand looking and gazing, and Elijah stands looking and gazing. Elijah gazes after 
uh, after Elijah, before he then stoops and picks up the mantle. And he continues on with his own story of being a prophet to the people. Another connection with this story of the ascension is the Easter story. Did you catch it? Like the scene at the empty tomb, here we have two messengers who show up in shining robes and say, why are you here? Jesus is gone. We also have a reference to 40 days. 40 is the number in scripture used to signify sacred time, a time when God's work is being done. Moses went up to the Mount Sinai for 40 days. Elijah went up to Mount Horeb for 40 days. The ancient Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before arriving at the promised land. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness before beginning his ministry. And you can also probably think of other references to 40 in the scriptures that you know. These connections are not cool coincidences. Luke wants to show us that no matter how the disciples might feel, they are not being left on their own, abandoned, without resources. They are part of a narrative of faith that has spanned a couple thousand years. They have seen great leaders being taken away before, though none like Jesus. But they have also seen people picking up the mantle and carrying on the work of ministry and going forth with courage. While we and the disciples might see Jesus leaving as the end of a book, the end of a chapter, Luke wants us to see this more like the turning of a page, turning to a whole new chapter. The disciples are being prepared. They have been prepared for this turning. Jesus has been with them for years and then with these 40 days after the resurrection. Now, a whole new chapter of the church awaits, and this chapter will look and sound very different than previous ones. Jesus is gone from them in bodily form. The spotlight is swinging away from him and starting to focus on the apostles, the disciples. Like Elisha, the disciples need to pick up the mantle and carry on the work. They need to leave their tight-knit community and go out into the world. The work will be tough, but they do not do it alone. Jesus has promised them a helper, an advocate coming in the Holy Spirit. And spoiler alert, the Holy Spirit does come next week in a fiery way. So for 40 days, the disciples have been listening and learning from Jesus, talking among themselves, sharing their story, and now Jesus has left. What is next? The disciples are standing around looking at the heavens, and again, messengers must show up and remind them, Jesus is not here, you guys. You will know when he comes back. We promise he will come back the same way you saw him leave. In the meantime, why are you still looking at the heaven? What are you doing here? Why are you standing here? We can understand this inclination of the disciples, if we're honest. And we should be comforted by the fact that disciples, despite all the time they have spent with Jesus, still haven't quite figured out what Jesus is asking them to do. They still haven't quite figured out what it means to follow Jesus out into the world. They stand there gazing at the skies, and they need the extra encouragement to get moving. Even these disciples, who have spent 40 days with the resurrected Christ, 
who have received proof of his resurrection over and over again. Even they who have heard Jesus praying and talking about the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is actually more like a kingdom, which pushes the boundaries of love and relationship, even they who have heard Jesus talk about how this kingdom is not the possession of one people or one race, but is for the whole world, for Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, even these disciples need to be reminded to leave the church and go be the church. Even they need to be reminded that worshiping Jesus doesn't mean just standing around looking up nostalgically to the heavens, talking amongst themselves. We should find comfort in the fact that the disciples still don't quite get it. The disciples still think this is all about them. They think it is Jesus' coming is about their own little kingdom of power. That's why we hear in their last moments with Jesus here on earth in bodily form, before he leaves, they ask excitedly, oh great, so this is the time when you'll bring back the kingdom of Israel. This is the time when we get our own king and judges and prophets to ourselves again. You can almost imagine Jesus staring at them, incredulous, and in fact, I believe, if you look, listen closely, you can hear Jesus smack his forehead with his palm. No, guys, no, no, that is not it. Repeat after me, the kingdom of God is not about you and you alone. It is not about this little cozy group of believers the kingdom of God is about sharing the story of what I've done here, where I have gone, the people to whom I have talked, how I have broken bread with the stranger and the foreigner, the Pharisee and the prostitute. Repeat after me, the kingdom of God is about going to the ends of the earth to witness, to tell my story, to share my love, offer my healing, embrace the people that I would embrace. Then Jesus leaves and the disciples stand there, looking up, trying to figure out what is happening. They need an extra prod. They need the extra reminder that the spotlight is swinging, that it is about to be fixed on them. The spotlight is swinging from them just being able to watch Jesus and cheer and be awed by him to them having to go forth and do awesome and loving things in God's name. The spotlight is swinging from what Jesus says about himself to what the disciples will show and tell with the grace of the Holy Spirit to the whole world. As one scholar puts it, the disciples are not supposed to be wistfully looking after their departed leader, setting up a memorial society to the dead Jesus. The spotlight is swinging, swinging from Jesus spending time with his small, tight-knit community to how the disciples will then go forth and embody Christ's love and grace and community in the world. We all know that at times, Christians have fallen far short of living out the story of Christ as we hear it in the Gospels. We can all write a long list of atrocities done in the name of Jesus. Indeed, even if it is painful to admit, we must remember that even in the last couple months alone here in the U.S., white Christian terrorists have stabbed and killed black men like Timothy Kaufman and Richard Collins III, Two years ago, a white Christian terrorist shot up a church in Charleston, and even on Friday, it was a white terrorist who hassled two teenage girls and then stabbed the th two of the three men who came to their defense. When we turn horrified attention 
to extremists in places like Manchester who reap evil in the name of Muhammad, we must not forget our own track record of the horrible ways people have chosen to use the name of Jesus to justify their cozy, closed-off communities and ways of seeing the world. We all know that there are people right here in Richmond, right down the road in Charlottesville, in Washington, D.C., and far beyond, who use Jesus to justify their own group of white supremacy. We must not let these people be the only ones carrying forth the name of Jesus into the world. We must admit that we have a tendency of doing what the disciples do, is we want to stare off longingly and let Jesus' ascension have the final word. Let that be the closing of the book. Let us just be entertained by the awesome things that God has done, and let us then continue on with our day. But then we hear Jesus say again, your job is not to talk about when the kingdom comes or who gets in. Your job is to tell the story and witness to my love and grace and healing. Your job is to remind people of how I welcome them, how I sit and talk and eat with them, how I embrace and heal them. The disciples have spent 40 days with Jesus since Easter. These are important days. These are important days for them to learn and listen from Christ and from each other. It is important for us to come to worship and share the story of Christ with each other, even in the summer, even at 10 o'clock. It is important to embody the peace of Christ to each other, even if it means shaking hands with a stranger or trying to figure out what to say when we look someone in the eye. We need this time together to remind ourselves what we believe, what Jesus has said and shown to us, but like the disciples, we cannot stand still gazing up to the sky and see that as the end of a chapter. We cannot remain comfortable in our beautiful building forever. We must listen when two messengers in shining robes show up and say, wait, why are you still standing here talking among yourselves? Get out there and start meeting people. Go on, get. I have a friend from college Mel Bars O'Malley, who served as a leader in her Greek sorority and as an army chaplain in Afghanistan. Mel is still the only person I met who easily changes from pink and pearls and high heels to camouflage and back again. On this Memorial Day weekend, I think about Mel and the ministry she has done with our women and men in the armed forces. She has walked with them through many tough and trying situations, many challenges that test our understanding of faith, and ethics and compassion. Mel has written about her experiences in this community and the challenges and joys that she faces there. And she writes about her basic training with this story. She says, I arrived for my first training experience, chaplain, basic, officer, leadership course. Nothing about seminary or my time in the Presbyterian Church USA had prepared me for this. For three years, I had been one of many women studying for a divinity degree at Duke Divinity School. In fact, more than half of my classmates were women, and regardless of gender, almost all the students shared a similar understanding of theology and scripture pretty squarely within the bounds of mainline Protestantism. 
Imagine my shock when a few days after graduation, I arrived at Fort Jackson, South Carolina for my basic training, and of the more than 150 students in my class, most came from religious traditions very different and far more conservative than mine. Only four were women. Any anxiety I felt on my arrival was confirmed hours later when we all boarded a bus to go to an event off base. What are you doing here? One of the aspiring shepherds asked me. Women aren't supposed to be chaplains. It was my first real desert experience. That first training experience was exactly 40 days and looking back I see that that number was significant for it was my own version of wilderness. Like my Israelite ancestors, I complained a lot. I buried my head in the sand, refusing to see the manna that God had provided despite my ingratitude. But also, like the Israelites, toward the end of the journey, I learned new ways of community. With imaginations reshaped by our training, I and my peers, despite our radical differences, became more willing to embrace each other. The night before we graduated, my squad, the Army's version of a small group, went to a local Chili's to celebrate. As we broke bread together, I saw my companions in a new light. Yes, they were still conservative evangelicals who disagreed with me about almost everything. Yet because of our time together in the desert, we shared more than our disagreement. We now knew each other intimately, and somehow that knowledge helped us transcend our theological differences. During the meal, one of my colleagues, a new chaplain who had been one of the most vocal opponents of women in ministry, told me about the imminent birth of his first child, a daughter, and his excitement and fear about the prospect of becoming a father. He showed me her ultrasound photo, and with tears in his eyes, he confessed that he hoped she would one day be like me. In his words, strong and sure, a willing servant of God. I never knew if he officially changed his mind about women in ministry, and I could wait the rest of my life before he would ever tell me. But that wasn't important in that moment. It was his acknowledgement and acceptance that really mattered. In our role as chaplains, the Army had room for both of us. As an Army chaplain, I got used to colleagues questioning my presence. But their disapproval was not the end of our collective story. After months of working together, experiencing and supporting one another in the throes of ministry, those same doubters often had a change of heart. After all, the army ensures that soldiers from every religious background may practice their faith and be led by capable, qualified chaplains who can create an appropriate sanctuary. It is in military chaplaincy, perhaps more than anywhere else in the religious world, that people from every theological background are thrown together and forced, because of our Constitution, to find a way forward. I can't imagine a more pertinent challenge for the church today, especially when so many denominations are struggling to address these same issues. The Army had room for all of us. We can spend a lot of time looking longingly after Jesus, trying to get back to a past time, we can do this in our church life as well, looking longly for a past time, a time when the church was full to the brim with people who looked just like us, 
a time when America was great for white Christians, when our belief systems and communities weren't challenged in the slightest, when everything was cozy and we could stay hunkered down in our upper room. But as that is not what this story of the beginning of the church is about, that is not what the story of Christ's ascension is about. This story tells us that Christ gives us a charge to go and be present in the world in the name of Christ. This story tells us that the Spirit won't come when we're standing around feeling nostalgic for the way things used to be. The Spirit comes when we start a new chapter, when we start to do ministry. Why are you standing here? The messengers call out to the disciples. The Holy Spirit is coming, and we must be out in the world to catch it. The Holy Spirit is coming, and we must be around other people to embody it. The Holy Spirit is coming, and the only thing that is unsurprising is how radically it will surprise us. We are not alone. Christ has prepared us for this new chapter. Why are we standing here? Let us follow God out, out, out into the world and to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Christ, we are far more comfortable in our cozy, closed-off communities sometimes. But you call us out into the world, and you remind us that your church has room for all of us, no matter what our background, no matter how we identify ourselves. Your church has room, and you call us to embody this church and embody your Holy Spirit in the name of your love and grace and care to the whole world, to the ends of the earth. Amen.